Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Henry Das is a special guest on today's show. He's a serial entrepreneur, business and finance coach, and author of FQ, Financial Intelligence. But before we get a chance to speak with Henry, it's a leadership hack in news. If you're anything like me, 2021 has brought about numerous learning opportunities to learn about ourselves and leadership. It's demanded an evolution of thinking, how we work, and how we behave. In research completed by Melissa Daimler for Forbes magazine, she has found that there are three skill shifts required that will help people adapt in 2021. And here they are. A shift from communication to empathy. Effective communicators and productive leaders are intertwined. This year has forced leaders to communicate constructively, even without answers, and we've had to push beyond comfort zones, beyond sharing updates and asking questions and listening much more attentively. And therefore, leaders have been asked to go deeper and develop empathy. Brené Brown, a professor and author, says empathy fuels connection. It's feeling with people and connecting with a person's situation. Of course, communication is absolutely essential, but communicating with empathy, that becomes really powerful. Emotional intelligence to emotional agility. When Ben Horowitz, a former entrepreneur and technology investor, was asked the most challenging skill to learn as a CEO, he said, it was the ability to manage his own psychology and emotions. Emotional agility goes beyond awareness and control. Susan David, a renowned psychologist, emphasizes that emotionally agile people are not only aware of their feelings, but know how to navigate through them and how we do this. And as a leader, the more emotionally agile you become, the more readily you'll be able to understand the intent of others' actions. Time management to context management. When it first dawned on us that working remotely would be here for some time, we followed the same pattern of the learning that we exhibited back in the late 1990s. We took our design framework from the classroom straight to the computer without attempting to adapt accordingly. And finally, after a while, we recognised that different mediums do call for different applications, often been referred to as the flipped classroom. We're seeing the same now with remote working and we cannot simply transfer how we worked in the office to our home space. Cramming in meetings, presentations, brainstorming sessions are very different from Zoom or MS Teams. And the flip workspace was coined by Alison Baum. And it's about leveraging what's been learned from flipping the classroom to flipping where you're working remotely. And what she noticed was that our context has really changed. We need to manage our time and design our days around how we work best based on what we're working on, whom we're working with and what for. But context is key. I often refer to these as my trusted psychics of because and reason. If you give people a because, you give people reason, you create context, and therefore they're likely to be more productive in the time they do have and the way they work. 
And what I've noticed recently is the subject of burnout has become very prevalent. And it's not our work that's burning us out. It's how we are working that is burning us out. So a little bit more empathy, more emotional agility, and some good old-fashioned context management will help us be really successful for 2021 and beyond. That's been the Leadership Hacking News. We'd love to hear your stories and insights, so please get in touch. Our special guest on today's show is Henry Das. He's a serial entrepreneur, business leader, personal finance coach, and author of FQ, Financial Intelligence. Henry, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So you've got a really interesting story, backstory, so to speak. Hasn't got a particular theme or a flow from it, but I guess that's part of that entrepreneurial spirit that you have. Just give the folks that are listening in today a little bit of a summary of your, your kind of early businesses and how you've arrived to do what you do today. Yeah, the, the, I'm kind of a word freak. So the word that I use is peripatetic, right? Really wow. good words. That's a good word. Yeah, I know. I like it. People can look it up if they've never heard it before. Uh, not always the most positive con- connotation when you say that. Um, but yeah, I started as an entrepreneur. I mean, the year now is 2021. I started in 1991. So it's basically been 30 years. Um, I started out with a kind of an opportunistic business where a college friend of mine was just handing me business on a silver platter. And before you know it, I said, hey, I'm going to quit my day job and uh, I'm going to become an entrepreneur. And that that started the journey and then it never ended. So here I am 30 years later and now I coach entrepreneurs who are kind of where I was 25, 30 years ago. So it's very, um, uh, it's almost like a little bit of deja vu there, mm. right? So, um, but I, but I love it. It's fun. Thinking back to that time where you quit your day job, what was the pull to the business opportunity? Just give us a little flavor of that. Uh, well, I'm going to say something a little bit off color, but uh, you could edit it out if you want to. I, I have a, a saying. I say, if I'm going to have to work every day for some asshole, it might as well be me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, there you go. So <laughs> feel free to bleep it if you want. I have no idea if this is PG rated or, or R rated. Well, not okay. anymore. No, not fine. anymore. I guess not. <laughs> it's an interesting hypothesis, right? Because there are some people who are quite comfortable in the spirit of working for others and, you know, taking a salary and growing through the corporate culture. That's absolutely perfectly acceptable, perfectly fine. Yeah. And there's some great leaders and heroes that we all know that work in that environment. But equally, if you feel constrained by that, the only way that you can really unleash your potential is by doing it for yourself, right? Yeah. What What's interesting is um, I'm thinking of creating an, another little vertical niche tentpole in my coaching practice, and that's called retirepreneurs. Because when I was doing the research for my book, FQ, I read a whole bunch of, you know, I did tons and tons of research. And one, retirepreneurs are uh, kind of the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs. But when I started looking into the driving factors, a lot of them worked in what I derisively call cubicle world for their entire careers. And then they got out and it's like, okay, now's the chance for me to do what I want to do, mm. right? And you now you're 60 something years old in many cases, maybe even older, but yet people are really uh, bootstrapping businesses because the barriers to entry, especially in, in the online world are almost non-existent, um, but they need help because they've worked for 40 or 50 years in that, in that um, 
you know, in that bubble where you've got hot and cold running resources in many cases, if you work for a large company, you don't have that anymore. Now you're a solopreneur. Mm. So it's like, okay, what do I do now? I mean, it's exciting, but it's also terrifying. Yeah. Also, I guess the notion of retirement has changed in the last 10 or 15 years. The, the whole conversation of retiring, typically, if you think across many people in the business world, there's not that many people I know of who literally down tools and don't do anything. There's definitely that little bit of coaching, counseling, consulting, and what do you call it? Retirepreneurs. And I think the whole retirepreneurs thing is a real opportunity for people who are still restless and want to do things in their either semi-retirement or retirement, right? Yeah. I mean, I think retirement itself is, is, um, you know, terrifying, right? Because, um, there's actually an, an odd statistic of a very high divorce rate for people who uh, all of a sudden one or the other retires because now you're home, right? Just like uh, COVID has ticked up the divorce rate because people are now under the same roof all the time. Mm, <laughs> and they look at right. each other and they say, oh, my God, this is a guy I married 40 years ago, not the same guy anymore. Well, you didn't notice when they were going to the office all the time. But now they're not going to the office. They're home tripping over the vacuum cleaner. Um, uh, corporate America has also changed the paradigm a little bit because when uh, I started working, which was 1981, so 40 years ago, uh, pensions were still a pretty normal thing. Well, pensions have gone the way of the dodo bird. I have a couple of friends who recently retired and they both got terrific pensions to the point where they don't have to work anymore. But corporations figured out how to divest themselves of that expense by creating d defined benefit plans, at least here in the U.S. Same, I don't know what it's pretty like. much the same across Europe yeah. as well. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So they've offloaded the risk of that to you. Now, add in COVID, they've offloaded another risk to you because people are, you know, quote, working from home. And I and I correct people all the time. I say, you're not working from home. You're living at your office. Yeah, right. Like you're that. paying you're paying the electric. You're, I don't know of a single person, including my son, my 29-year-old son lives with us here now in Connecticut, and he's working remotely. They didn't even provide him with a computer. You know, I, I build computers as kind of a hobby, and I had just finished building a really, really nice, um, super fast computer. And it's like, Dad, can I use that? It's like, don't they give you one? No, no, they don't. So I'm paying for the internet here. I'm paying for the electric here and he's working remotely and there's no cost of the office space and all that stuff. So that's, that's the future. When you work for someone else, you're becoming, they talk about the gig economy. Well, that's on steroids now yeah. where even though you work for a big company, you're effectively untethered. So that actually makes it pretty easy to start an entrepreneurial business, right? Because you could start one from home. There's nobody, you know, you're working remotely. No one's snooping over your shoulder. No one knows what you're doing with your infrastructure to start maybe uh, an FBA business or, you know, a SaaS business or anything. That's very true. That's pretty, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it's a great opportunity. So as a serial entrepreneur and having always been on the lookout for new opportunities and new inspirations, is there anything specifically that you look for in new ventures, new opportunities when you go, right, yeah, I'm going to invest in that? There are, there are two things you need to, to know whether a business is viable. Only two things you have to figure out. Gross margin, cash flow, right? If you can solve those two problems, then it doesn't really matter what the business is. Problem is that's really tricky to do in, in a lot of businesses. Um, 
you want to, you know, you want to niche down, right? There are riches in niches, as they say, right? So you want to niche down, but if you niche down too far, then you'll discover that there's no audience for whatever it is that you have to offer. Uh, so finding that right balance. I wrote a little thing that's that's on um, my, uh, it's like a little tripwire on my website. It's a freebie. It's like a 30 page PDF, five reasons small businesses fail. And I've actually done a talk. I have a deck for it. I've done talks at various conference with this. And the number one reason is idea. Your idea sucks. It's the reason most businesses fail is you just have a crummy idea. You got to sit down and figure out what's, what's my gross margin, what's my cash flow, And then you've got to start analyzing all the other things that go with it. Who's the competition, right? Is the market morphing and changing? So what I've noticed is, that's interesting now that COVID has brought up is a lot of mobile businesses, right? Mobile, it used to be mobile dog groomers. I didn't know any such a thing existed. But now there's a lot of money going into mobile automobile care. I had new tires put on my vehicle. They came to the house. I had an oil change done in my driveway. Uh, Wow. I mean, I could do the oil change myself. It's not rocket science, but I have no place to dispose of the oil. (laughs) What am I going to do with it? So, and the guy looked at me and he said, you know, you need, you need new brakes. It's like, yeah. He goes, well, I can do that for you. Mm. Really? You're going to sit here and do a, a brake job right in my, in my, um, driveway. It's like, wow. So think about all of those things that all those touchless services um, moving forward, because if you think this is going to be the last pandemic we're going to have, think again. Yeah. I think it was Bill Gates, wasn't it? That called it early about five years ago that the biggest threat to our economy isn't through physical warfare, but it was actually through viral warfare, which he described it as. And I think you're absolutely right. We've become a culture that is now ripe for the spread of virus and COVID-19 is perhaps not the last I think we've seen of that for sure. No, I mean, on a, on a global basis, the, the, the largest segment of life form greater than 50% is bacteria, right? It's just everywhere. And and we're at the mercy of Mother Nature, whether we care to admit it or not. And we keep messing with it with all the dumb stuff that we're doing as humans. You have to expect there will be ramifications. Yeah. So, uh, and and with any change, there's opportunity. Absolutely right. Right. Even if even if you have a nice business going, you're going to have to to pivot. Right. One of the things that I have on my website and I love the graphic. It's like, you know, get your business out of zombie mode. Right. Uh, and I love that because my web designer did that and she put that little graphic in there because we had talked about zombie mode. Well, I've talked to entrepreneurs who kind of want to put their business into, into zombie mode. They're like, I just kind of like it the way that it is. Right. And I say, well, that's fine, but wait five minutes and it's going to change. You're, you may not change, but the world will change. Yeah. Are you prepared for that? It is, you are constantly iterating. It's exhausting for people, which is why I think so few people want to be entrepreneurs, or maybe they, those, that's another segment, which are called, you know, entrepreneurs, which are generally people who want to be an entrepreneur, but are never going to get over the hump. And believe me, I've talked to some, I've even coached some, and it's an exercise in frustration because they're never going to pull the rip. What's the reason for that? They're scared. Hmm. They're basically scared. Right. 
you work for somebody, you get a paycheck, you go on a two-week vacation, you never have to call the office because you're just kind of a cog in the wheel. And people say, oh, entrepreneurship is too risky. I say, uh, yeah, you know what's riskier than entrepreneurship? Working for somebody else. (laughs) Because they determine your fate. 30 million people in the U.S. were laid off overnight when COVID came. Mm. Right? Yeah, that's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? Scary. So there's a few things that you've talked about that have a direct correlation, albeit they might not appear directly correlated to your work right now. So as a finance coach, uh, having written the book, FQ, Financial Intelligence, there are a number of little things I just wanted to pull out there that we could maybe have a conversation around. So you were telling around the way that people are pivoting their businesses and, you know, looking at mobile opportunities. You were talking around the fact that people are less office spaces. So that directly says to me that people are going to be, there's going to be a wash of commercial property that's up for grabs for either reinvestment or divestment. And if there is a a rush to more mobile activities, there's also an investment opportunity there. So those natural occurring economic uh, events that are happening around us may not be so apparent but is that the kind of thing you coach people on somewhat so that's probably you know i really have two platforms there's the entrepreneurial coaching where i'm working with you know entrepreneurs and business leaders and then there's and then there's the fq which is pretty much for anybody anybody who wants to level up their financial game so i take a very um, systematic, methodical approach and it's really based on you know my and my 61 years on the planet um, it worked for me. It may or may not work for you, but the fundamental tenets of how you manage things, I think there's a universality to it, right? Right. People ask me, what's the number one takeaway? Risk, right? We just touched on it. Which is riskier, working for yourself or working for somebody else? Most people will tell you working for yourself. I uh, demure on that. I don't believe so. Um, I believe working for someone else. But it's the same thing with portfolio risk, Right. So look at commercial real estate. I talked to my former landlord in New York City um, and I wrote about it in one of my bi-monthly newsletters that I put out. I call it the DOS FQ update. And I try to touch on little areas and try to dig a little bit deeper than the superficial headlines that you find in most of the financial world or the mainstream media. And he was telling me about how when COVID hit, he's got 600 units in New York City, right? So 600 different tenants, which is a lot. And they own a bunch of buildings. And he said, the government came out and said, "Um, you know what? You don't have to pay your rent. So guess what people did? (laughs) Or, Or in this case, didn't do, right? They just stopped paying their rent. So here I am, the big bad landlord that everybody hates and demonizes. They didn't do anything for me. My real estate taxes are still due. My debt service is still due. Um, I guess they didn't care because they figured all of us are rich, which is not true. Yeah, sure. Some of them are the, you know, the Rudens of the world and the, and the Helmsleys of the world. Sure. Yeah. But a lot of them are little entrepreneurs, just like everybody else. And they got slammed and the ability to pivot when you're in a real estate portfolio, it's a lot tougher than if you just have a nimble entrepreneurial business. Oh, we're a SaaS business and we were servicing this market. Well, let's service this market, right? You can pivot on a dime. Can't do that in a real estate business. Just, yeah, it's just not, just not possible. But there will be huge opportunities because think about the 
I'm living at my office. Well, you got all these commercial buildings. In many cases, they've got enterprise level infrastructure built in. So if you can convert those into, into, into live work condos, well, there you go, right? Uh, people have to live somewhere and they don't have to live proximate to an office anymore, which is why the real estate here in the United States um, has gone haywire. I mean, we bought our house. We, we went to contract in October and we bought the house. Uh, we closed in December, but we had to pay about 20% over the asking price. And there were 10 bids in 24 hours uh, for, for this little house on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut. Um, that's kind of crazy. That won't last. You know, that will start to, to fall off a little bit after people realize that, oh, my God, I just moved 100 miles from my office. And now guess what? They want me to come back because they realize they're spending 90 bucks a square foot for this office space and we better have some bodies in there. Otherwise we made a terrible financial decision. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if you think about the whole notion of there is opportunity in any crisis, how do you help some of your clients through the, the moral dilemma in taking advantage of other people's business downturn in order to get ahead? Well, I'm, I'm very careful about predatory behavior. I'm not a fan of it. Don't, don't be a predator, right? But some of this is just more, more pattern language, right? You say taking advantage, taking advantage of um, a downturn. Let's say, for instance, okay, let's say the commercial real estate market collapses in the next six months, which is, I don't know if it's a probability, but it's a possibility that it just might. What do you do? Do you go in and, and, and take the cash that you've been hoarding on the side and buy stuff for nickels on the dollar? Is that predatory behavior? Or are you, are you injecting liquidity into the market where otherwise this place might just go to foreclosure and, and get stuck on a, on, a, on a bank's balance sheet somewhere? Um, it's sort of like short selling, right? There's, yeah. The short, short sellers have a sullied reputation in the market. And some of it is deserved because they will, they will bash a company relentlessly to drive the price down and then they'll cover and they'll make a boatload of money and they really didn't do anything. But again, they brought liquidity into the marketplace. Liquidity is good. A lack of liquidity will destroy an economy, right? The right. biggest, the biggest headwind that we faced when COVID came here in the U S and we learned this lesson back in 2008 with the housing crisis, the housing crisis was essentially a liquidity crisis. When you break it, when you strip away all the other stuff that went on there and the fed with Bernanke and Paulson came in and, and they were just kind of printing money, right? They're doing the quantitative easing, right? Which is a fancy word for saying, we're just going to go buy bonds and we're just going to print money and we're going to buy bonds. Um, the first thing that the Fed did when the, uh, here in the US when um, that happened back in March was they said, we are going to provide an infinite backstop. We will never stop backstopping this economy. Well, I heard that and I said, that's really good news. Uh, that really, really good news. Now, now we're seeing the effect of that a little bit with it, with the inflation fears that have gone on, right? The price of lumber, 1500 bucks for a thousand board feet. That might not mean anything to anybody, except that it's usually about 200 bucks 
right? So a stick of wood that used to yeah. called cost $2. I moved into a new house. I hadn't bought sticks of wood in a few years. And I had this mental image of what it cost. And when I walked into Home Depot here and it was $7, I thought, what on God's green earth has happened? Um, and now it's gone up mm. even higher. Uh, we're planning a renovation for this house. Well, that cost just went up by about 30%. So you know what? I can put it off. Yeah. Well, then think about how that in, uh, impacts the world. If folks like me put it off, that removes demand. Supply is constrained, but if we lower demand too, but then we get into the issues of stagflation. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but there's a lot of, there are a lot of um, unintended consequences of, of these, of these black swan events that occur like uh, coronavirus, and they will take time to work their way through the system. Um, we talked about it. I don't know if it was before we were recording, but we talk about keeping the powder dry, right? Put away a little yeah. safe, safe store of cash. There will be opportunities. You have to decide when you put your you know, head down on the pillow at night, whether the deal that you're trying to do uh, fits your moral code or your ethical code, right? You have to operate, I believe, by some sort of code. And for me, if I feel like I'm being predatory, there's a very good chance that I won't go through it because I don't like the idea of cashing in on someone else's pain. Yeah, but I do like the way you reframed it earlier. So this is definitely a mindset for me around the adversities okay. happen, right? And inaction in itself means that that could be catastrophic, whereas some action from somebody who can add liquidity, add investment, add opportunity for others to then grow again is a good part of the economy. And I think that definitely there is a mindset that plays out there, isn't there? Oh, there, there's there's no question that it is. And it's, you know, you'll hear people talk about smart money, dumb money, right? Uh, it's an indicator that I follow. There's a couple of indicators that I follow that uh, smart money are the people who make smart money moves. And dumb money are people who make the dumb money moves. Right now, dumb money optimism is stratospheric, where the smart money is kind of pessimistic, right? They look at the market and mm. say, hey, none of this makes a lot of sense, right? Like, why are people spending huge amounts of money on collectibles, right? Like I collect baseball cards from the 1960s and 70s. Um, mm. Usually every spring when the baseball season starts, you know, I work on adding stuff to my collection. Well, it went crazy and the prices went crazy. And I'm like, I'm not going to buy into that. Uh, in fact, I should be a net seller. I should probably divest some of the of the cards that I have because the prices are, yeah. are idiotic. Um, I don't want to. That in itself could be could be um, construed as predatory because if you know that the market is overvalued and you purposely go in and sell your collectibles for a price that that um, that you think that they're not even worth, that's that's you know you're taking advantage of it. But I didn't make the prices; the market did. Sure. There's a latest craze as well of um, sneakers and running shoes. Going there was a an old pair of Kenya West running shoes yesterday that was sold for one and a half million dollars. My my old my twenty nine year old son is a bit of a sneakerhead, and he's got uh, probably a hundred different pairs of sneakers. Right, and he he buys and sells them, but but mostly he he likes it because he enjoys them. So he bought a pair of Jordan 
golf shoes. I looked at them. I'm like, wow, those are gorgeous. He's like, dad, I could, I paid like, you know, $250. I go and I buy the cheap golf shoes. You know, I'm a golfer. I I, I just bought a new pair. I just try to buy the cheapest thing yeah. ever. Cause I know I'm going to wear them out in the season anyway. So it's like, I, I, he said, dad, I could flip these for probably a thousand bucks. I said, well, then why don't you? Yeah. Well, because I like them and I want to play with them. All right. Well, that's good too. <laughs> and there is this, this new trend of, investment strategies around things like there's an index now for sneakers and running shoes. Wow. There's also, you know, lots of other things that are presenting itself that are attracting new um, financial solopreneurs into the investment space, such as Bitcoin and stuff like oh, that yeah. and cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. Crypto, right? Yeah. What, what's your yeah. take on kind of taking advantage of some of these emerging investment strategies and, and indexes where you can't really value them in, as you would an old fashioned stock? Well, for me, if I can't value it, uh, I, I got nothing for you, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is pretty basic. Now, some of this is, goes back to the fact that when I started trading, I was in high school. I bought my first stock. I was 17 years old of uh, Chrysler, you know, the automobile company. Um, so I've been doing this a long, long time. And I started as a fundamental investor. So I looked at the fundamentals, right? There are things like price earnings ratio, right? These are measurable things. As an entrepreneur, you can measure whether your business is successful by measuring your gross margin and measuring your cash flow and measuring your price, you know, your, your, um, uh, your P&L, your profit and loss and looking at your balance sheet. These numbers don't lie. You can make them lie if you want to. That's what accountants are for. They're, they're, they're supposed to make them lie to the government so you don't have to pay more taxes than you have to. But otherwise, they're, they're numbers. The beautiful thing about them is they're the same in every language, right? And they speak to you. Um, the crypto stuff, uh, now I run a passive, you know, I have a passive uh, investing mastermind group that I run. Um, so we talk about crypto all the time. Um, I, I, and I told the guys at the last meeting that we had, I said, look, every, every generation will have their snake oil, their folly. Yours just might very well be crypto or maybe the next, and maybe the next generation are these NFT, these non-fungible tokens, right? Um, fungible means to perform. So you're telling me that this is a non-performing token. Well, that alone is going to make me run for the hills. Yeah. Any investment manager worth their salt would have a few worry beads about that, right? <laughs> exactly. But you know what? You you can't prevent people from the folly of their own ways, right? So when you have a guy goes on Saturday Night Live, Elon Musk, and start talking about this Dogecoin, which was created as a joke, uh, and now that's going up, and then he says something and it goes down. Do I really want to participate in a market where one person's word can cause a waterfall decline. I just, that I, 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 it doesn't meet my risk tolerance. It doesn't meet the profile. There are so many things to invest in. I'm primarily a stock investor, although I've invested in real estate and I, and I own gold and I, and I participated in a lot of arenas. I got to understand it. I have to be comfortable with it, right? I invest in a lot of pharmaceutical stocks. Do I understand the science behind these? pharmaceutical stocks hardly but i do understand the landscape and i can read a report and look at the numbers to sort of see how this is going right 
I can't do that with anything currency related or anything crypto or otherwise. Yeah. And that's, that's worrisome. Yeah. So I don't want to worry about it. I don't want to worry that in the middle of that, plus it trades 168 hours a week, right? Nice thing about the stock exchange. It's open 32 and a half hours a week. That means for the rest of the week, I got time to myself and I, 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 I know that, that prices are moving in the background, but they're not moving you know, that much, uh, where crypto, I could be asleep and wake up and, and it loses 20% of its value uh, as I'm having my morning coffee. Yeah. I want no part of that. Yeah. None. There's definitely people that have got rich on cryptocurrency without a shadow of a doubt. Oh yeah. But like you said, they're also probably the same people who will hold on to it for too long and also, um, perhaps not be so rich at the end. Yeah, there's a there's a curve that's called the, uh, you know, it's like the boomer bust curve. There's like 14 different steps to the wave. Um, and it goes from irrational exuberance to complete and utter despondency, right? It's like, it makes like a sine wave. Uh, I've got it somewhere, mm. somewhere in my book. Um, you you kind of need to know where you are on that curve uh, because that will help guide you into where you should be right now. I think everything is overly risky, uh, but you know, I, I worry about the downside all the time. Uh, and sometimes I'll trade the downside. You know, if, if things get more parabolic, I'll, I'll start fading stuff because, because the mm. probability that this thing is going to go up 10% versus down 30% it's much greater on the downside. And I want the odds in my favor. I'm in this to make money. Let's face it. Uh, and I don't lose yeah. sleep over the fact that some other trader somewhere, that this is not necessarily a zero sum game, but if it was a zero sum game, like in the options or the futures market, you know, it's counterparty trade, you know, they're, he's, he or she is a grown ass adult. They make their own decisions. So if I'm tuning into this today and I've got maybe a small part of cash in my pension or I have some residual cash in my business, I'm just thinking about where should I start investing? Now, I'm not asking for a specific stock here, but if I was going to start out, where would you kind of guide me as a coach? That would be a sensible place to start investing. Well, I'll I'll relate a story that I've related before. This was a couple of years ago. I was in Bangkok for a conference um, uh, and I had... um, you know, I had a sponsor, you know, sort of a sponsor for the conference, about 300 entrepreneurs, um, uh, what they call digital nomads, and they run location independent businesses, which is another future trend. Uh, it, I mean, it's a now trend, but it's going to be even, even, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. And he said, you know, can I, can I, um, you know, borrow some of your time? I said, sure, you know, come up, I'm going to order room service, we'll hang, we'll talk for an hour. And he's an entrepreneur, successful one, lives in California. And he wanted to know, where do I put my money? Just like you asked. I said, well, what are you interested in? What do you like? He said, you know what? I really like real estate. I said, well, then do real estate, right? You got to have some affinity for the investments. So if you love crypto and you're reading about crypto and you're totally into crypto all of the time, Sure, invest in in crypto, but you better keep a really close eye on it because the volatility and the risk there is very high. If you like stocks, stocks can be really boring. Yeah. Um, I've tried to teach stocks to, to young people, but I tell people another one of my many, many, many idioms is I, I say, if your trading is exciting, you are doing something wrong. It is not 
supposed to be exciting. In fact, a few years ago when I was pretty much maybe 10 years ago or so when I was trading pretty much full time, uh, the reason I stopped doing it is it just was boring. I mean, I was making plenty of money, uh, but money doesn't excite me that way. There was no human interaction. I, you know, I don't watch any of the shows because those are, they're dumb. That's trader porn. Like if you watch uh, CNBC or the other ones, it's like that can negative. Yeah. Yeah. Bloomberg. All that stuff can, uh, I wrote about it in my book, how, how I blew a trade because of some listening to some yo-yo on one of those channels and I never turned them on again. You have to. I I never have. I just, I trust my instruments. I'm flying a plane. I want my instruments, not somebody talking in my ear, telling me what it is that I should do. Find what you're interested to start with. Now, people come back to me and say, Henry, I'm not really interested in any of this. I just want to hire somebody to go do it for me so I can go play golf or, you know, whatever. I say, well, if you were hiring somebody to do anything for you, do you think you want to have at least maybe a passing knowledge? Maybe understand the, the verbiage so you know what they're talking about. I'm not telling you that you need to be an expert. But you should know something because if you don't, you're going to get fleeced. Yeah, definitely. Here's a, here's an example. I had a guy in, in here uh, because I have my, the floors in part of my house are cold. And the guy came in and said, oh, what's because your crawl space is not insulated. Yada, yada, yada. Next thing you know, I got a quote for $7,000 to insulate my, my you know, encapsulate my crawl space. So I said, huh, all right, well, what do I want to do? I want to do a sanity check and call a couple other people and have them in. And then I had two other guys come in and they both said, you can do it and you can spend $7,000, but it's not going to solve your problem. Because when it's all said and done, you're still going to have cold floors. Yeah. (laughs) So you need to have at least some knowledge, do some research before you can make decisions, especially if you're going to hire somebody to manage what is arguably the most important and ubiquitous aspect of your life, which is money. You will never, ever get a day off for money. Even if you win the lottery, maybe you'll get a day off. And then the next day you got to figure out what am I going to do with this giant pile of cheddar? And how am I going to keep all these predators from trying to steal it from me? (laughs) So that's very true. And often couldn't even be in a past life. I used to, be the investment fund manager for a lot of lottery winners. Uh-huh. And in, in many cases, it causes them more stress and anxiety than before they had it uh, because it's now something else they have to worry about. There's legendary stories of people who have gone bust. There was even a story of a guy who got murdered because he'd won $30 million and he didn't even care about the money, right? I don't even know why he bothered to play uh, the lottery, but somebody cared about it and worked out a scheme and ended up you know, killing the guys. So yeah, there's, there are books out there about, about these um, problems. And the reason in most cases is they didn't do anything to earn it. Right. They just, Mm. they just didn't. I mean, if I went out there, there used to be a TV show called the the millionaire way back in the 1960s when I was a kid guy named John Beresford Tipton, and he would give people a million dollars. I don't know if it was real or not. But if you went around and gave people a million dollars and then came back and checked with them, if you gave a hundred people a million dollars and checked with them, say five years later, how many of them you think would have more of that million dollars than less? I reckon percentage wise, it must be less. It must be. It, it, it's, it's powder. It's probably a couple yeah. of basis points of people who would. Most people would just go out and squander it on stupid stuff that they just had pent up demand for. 
very few of them. I mean, we see it with professional athletes here in, in the U.S. I'm sure there's mm. similar problems. Um, guys who've made millions and millions of dollars and then they retire and they get out and they file for bankruptcy. Um, and you scratch your head and say, how could that be? That guy made four, $50 million in, in like a five-year or, or less than 10-year career. How did they manage to squander it? But they do. You know, where there's a will, there's a way. I don't want people to do that. You know, I look at my parents who were of very, very modest means, and yet they live they live very well. And when they die, they left, you know, they left money behind, which is kind of unusual in and of itself. A lot of people die broke. Um, yeah. And they did it not by being extremely frugal, uh, but they were smart and they managed their money and they, they knew their risk tolerances. Um, and they understood that there's sometimes there's a little bit of sacrifice that you have to make in the short term to to get a, a, a long term gain, a long term windfall in many cases. Um, that's about the mental process. That's about being mindful and adapting sure. to that. Now, you've been a entrepreneur, solopreneur, had many businesses and led many teams. This is a leadership hacker opportunity to tap into your leadership backstory. So the first place I'd like to go to, Henry, is to tap into your top three leadership hacks. What would they be? Okay. Number one is find smart people, right? That's another, you know, Bill Gates. Surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Now, smart is a relative term. It could be that they're more financially intelligent, emotionally intelligent. It could be that they're, uh, they provide stability. But whatever it is, find some people that you trust to be part of your leaders, your personal leadership team, even if you're just a solopreneur. In addition to that, maybe this is one, that's number one, maybe 1A, is find some people whose worldview is counter to yours. Because it's very dangerous. You, can, you could build a, a system where it's just groupthink right? Where there's just a bunch of uh, uh, yes men. Uh, I don't know if you know um, who Tony Shea is, the guy who founded Zappo. Yes. Sadly passed away. Yeah. Yeah, he died tragically. Uh, and I had gone to Zappos, um, right? I had gone to their headquarters with a group of entrepreneurs um, right after they were bought by Amazon. And we met with their, you know, top, we didn't meet with Tony because he was out of town, but we met with their top people and we looked at what we were doing. And this is out in Vegas. It was before they bought this compound. So I had a lot of admiration for this guy. This guy was a self-made guy. I, I thought he was one of the good guys. But then I read at the end there, he kind of lost his way. He had, you know, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, but he was... He was using it to sort of buy friends. I had no idea what this what the, this this story was. Um, and the singer Jewel had sent him a letter saying, you know, you're going down a bad path here. You don't have any friends. Everybody that you know is on your payroll. So you have to be careful. Um, you, you know, if you have a business idea, I was talking about five reasons business fails. So if you have a business idea, it's very important for you to go to that friend that everybody has who hates everything and pitch them your business idea. And let them poke holes in it, yeah. right? Let them destroy your business idea and kill your hopes and dreams. You need that because if you can survive that, you might be onto something with a business idea. So it's the same thing. You, you need to have a, a, a nice array of people. Um, but ultimately, as a leader, 
the decisions are yours and you need to take responsibility. I have another, another one of my millions of idioms. I say, here, here's what I tell people. I, they want to know what makes people successful. I said, successful people make proactive decisions and live with the consequences. Unsuccessful people abdicate responsibility for making decisions to someone else and then whine about it when it goes against them. Mm, really like that. So you are going to make decisions. And, you know, here's probably number three. You're going to mess a bunch of them up. You're going to mess a lot of them up. You just are. Yeah. You want them to be minor in the grand scheme of things. But I wrote in my book how I partnered with a guy. We were building multi-million dollar spec houses. And he jumped off a bridge and killed himself and left me holding a multi-million dollar bag as the sole living, breathing guarantor on this project. Wow. This is back in 2000, end of beginning of 2007 started a, basically a, a, a two year nightmare where I got sued by everybody and this, that, and the other thing. Um, and then we went before a judge and we won for reasons that to this day, I still don't understand how we won. It was a symptom of the time mm. because, because our case came at the same time that Lehman Brothers failed and banks were really, really looked down upon for outside risk in the real estate business. Um, and again, I, I wrote about it in the book. I called it the greater asshole theory. The judge decided who's the bigger <laughs> asshole, the bank for loaning us the money or us for taking yeah. it. And the, he decided it would, the bank should have known better. Thank goodness, huh? Uh, why? Even my lawyer, when he called me, said, you better sit down because the judge gave you a get-out-of-jail-free card. And I have no idea why, after 30 years in business, he did that. But we should thank our lucky stars. So yeah. you you can make, you know, even the smartest, most successful people. Um, you know, Warren Buffett talks about how the, you know, the company he bought, Berkshire Hathaway, which is the name of his company, which was a mill that he bought as one of his first, if not his first investment. And he could never make that business work. He referred to it as his, as his, you know, biggest failure. Um, he named the company, he kept the company name. Maybe that was a constant reminder that you're only one deal. You're only one deal, one bad deal away yeah. from being totally humbled. Absolutely. Right. So the next part of the show, we call it hack to attack. So this is typically where something in your life or work hasn't worked out well. But you've then, as a result of it, learned from it, and it's now a positive. Do you have a hack for attack for us? Hmm. Well, I could go back to that idea of um, of partnerships. A lot of people get into partnerships. My first partnership was with that college friend who was feeding me deals, um, and I and I made a um, you know a tragic blunder. I didn't have a buy sell agreement with him. So while everything was nice and rosy, rosy and beautiful, everything was fine and we were making a lot of money. But once that turned, uh, it was all, mm. you know, it was terrible. It was like the war of the roses, right? What I learned from that was I was afraid that as an entrepreneur, I couldn't be a solo act because I was dependent on him for sales. So he was doing all the selling and I wasn't. And then when I started my next business, it's like, well, you know what? It's just me. So I better pick myself up and by the bootstraps and learn mm. how to sell. And I surprised myself. I did. Uh, and I said, ah, uh, you know what? I don't need a partner. But then years later, 
I got into the the real this real estate deal. This guy was a builder. He built multi million dollar homes. He knew everything. He had the crews and whatever. So I was the money guy who who um, married with him. Right. The, the problem is, I didn't put in the necessary checks and balances. So when he jumped off the bridge, I was financially blindsided by yeah. that. So again, another lesson learned. And a bit like in the investment world, it's expect the unexpected, isn't it? You know, you you kind of always need a put option. Uh, certainly, if you're a trader and you have portfolio exposure, um, one of the one of the early issues with crypto, which people at the time, and again, earlier, we were talking a couple of years ago, was I said, how do you short this market? And they said, well, you, you, you can't. I said, well, that alone counts me out. Because again, we're back to the idea of having liquidity. But then the CME came in and they created a futures exchange. But it's still apparently rather difficult to, to fade the crypto market. Um, and that bothers me, right? You, you know, you, mm. you need to... You know, you need to be able to to get in on the downside. As much as people psychologically don't like to bet on failure, right? Ninety something percent of stock traders are long traders, probably close to ninety nine percent. Most people they go long, and in the hopes that it goes up. Um, yet you need to have that other arrow in your quiver because sometimes, like now, where the market's really really frothy. Um, there's there's much more money to be made, in my opinion, on the downside than there is on the upside, mm. right? And it's having that balance too, right? Well, it's also having the intestinal fortitude to go against the trend. I'm not saying I'm gonna. I, I'm not saying to people now here in May of 2021 that you should run out and, and short this market. But don't see. Don't be surprised when there's a downturn, and there's a lot of money to be made in short periods of time. But you you have to have you got to have the chops and you have to have the intestinal fortitude to weather it because you talk about exciting trading, which is what we're not looking for. That gets real exciting really fast. Mm. The very last thing we want to do, Henry, is do a bit of time travel with you. So we've become really accustomed at this part of the show to get you to bump into yourself at 21 and you get a chance to look Henry in the face and say, here's some advice. What would it be? You know, that's interesting. Um, I thought, of, uh, you know, I, I've thought about that in the past and I did, I did, you know, what's called Hakomi therapy for a number of years where you actually do kind of travel back to your younger self. But I traveled back to myself at like, you know, grammar school age. Um, and during that therapy, um, what I learned was to forgive myself for the things that I did at a young age because, you know, I just, I just didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have the experience. And sometimes, so if I were going back to my 21 year old, I would say, you know, let go of a lot of, of this baggage that you carried as a younger person, because it's not going to serve you as an adult. Right. Uh, I never thought of myself as being considered it was my my biggest pet peeve. My opinion didn't matter. Uh, my yeah. parents were a little overbearing and old school depression babies. They you know they were great parents, um, but nobody's perfect. As a, as the parent of you know three boys who are all pretty much grown ass men right now, you're just trying to minimize the number of mistakes you make as a parent. It's <laughs> really your kind of your goal <laughs> because you're going to absolutely. Yeah, great advice. Right. And and I and I often say I don't want to make the same mistakes my parents did. I want to make all new ones. I don't want their dusty old mistakes. I want my brand new shiny mistakes. 
right? Mm. Um, but you don't know that when you're when you're when you're 21, when you're just sort of you know coming to adult age, you don't you don't realize how much your early in, um, upbringing impacts you. Um, and and you know my book, I start with the psychology of money. So you need to really take a look back at that younger version of yourself and say to yourself, you know, was I raised up to live in scarcity or was I raised up to live in abundance? I was raised to live in scarcity. And I still have that. And every day that goes by, I worry about money, even though I don't really need to worry about money. But I do anyway, because that was imprinted in me at a very, very young age. And I've had to teach myself to live in abundance. Mm. Which do you think serves people better? Well, abundance does as long as it's, it's, you know, collared in some way, you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow. Ye may die. Uh, there's something to, to, to be said for that. Um, but you have to have a healthy dose of, of scarcity to kind of keep you grounded and keep yourself humble. There's no get rich quick system, but there is many get rich slowly, methodically, and disciplined way. I couldn't have said it better. I believe in get rich, slow schemes. <laughs> I know. Great yeah. stuff. So, Henry, listen, I've had a ball listening and talking to you, and I'm delighted that we have you as part of our Leadership Hacker community. If folk wanted to get to learn a little bit more about you and maybe get a copy of FQ, where's the best place for us to send them? So one of the things I do is I offer a free month of coaching. If you go to podcast.dosknowledge.com and DOS is spelled with two A's and one S, although if you spell it D-A-S-S, as many people do, it still takes you there because I have both URLs because I'm belts and braces. Um, and you can sign up for a free month of coaching, which would be four sessions for half an hour. We can talk about entrepreneurship. We can talk about money. We can talk about baseball cards. Uh, you know, it's your time. It's an opportunity to experience, uh, especially for those of you who've never had a coach before, kind of what a professional coach brings to the table. There's no obligation to, you know, continue. It's my gift to podcast listeners. If you want the book, go to dosknowledge.com. You can download it for free. You got to click on the FQ tab and somewhere in there, there's a link to uh, download it for free from Book Baby because the only one who makes money off of books is Bezos, and he already has enough of it. Uh, he does indeed. He does indeed. So listen, thank you ever so much for coming on our show. We'll make sure those links are in the show notes as well, so people can access them super quick. But Henry, listen, good luck, and I hope that your financial frugality keeps serving you well for the future. Uh, and thanks for being on the Leadership Hacker podcast. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event or you would like to sponsor an episode please connect with us via our social media and you can do that by following and liking our pages on twitter and facebook our handle there is at leadership hacker instagram you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker and at youtube we're just leadership hacker 
So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.